Welcome to the Self-Evident and Forgotten Podcast, a show with conversations on the truths of liberty and odd opinions. We're your hosts, Stanton, Christy, and Cody. As always, the opinions we express are ours and ours alone, and they don't necessarily reflect those of our employers or any other organization we may belong to. Wherever you are, and however you're listening and whatever you're doing, thanks for tuning in. Now relax and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Self-Evident and Forgotten. We're your hosts, Stanton, Christie, and Cody, with the United States withdrawing from Afghanistan finally after two decades. Many people wonder, what's next for America and her foreign policy? Well, what the hell exactly is foreign policy? It's the collection of goals, plans, and actions by a national government in dealing with other governments, companies, groups, and individuals from other nations. And sometimes, if you know what you're doing, you're able to direct those policies towards a general unifying objective. What those objectives are can be the difference between sanctions and trade, war and peace. And today, we're going to explore how different kinds of freedom lovers think on foreign policy. But first, as always, the random question of the episode, Christine Cody, if you have a favorite piece of music or art, what is it and why? Ooh, okay. Funny story. I actually love music and art, which most people have no idea about me because I'm so into like facts and statistics and politics, <laughs> but um, Van Gogh and Monet are my absolute favorite artists. So Whatever they paint, I absolutely love. And music, I grew up with like Vivaldi and Bach and Beethoven. So like all the classical hits, although Tchaikovsky is like the best. I love it. I love it. That's Sorry, that was like a long answer. You said one piece and I picked like No, 50. no, that, I mean, uh, classic. We, we got a classicist over it. Well, not a <laughs> classicist. That's going to be Cody with his antiquity and Roman obsession. <laughs> Oh, I'm going to upset you all because Monet is my favorite. Hey, lovely. I love Monet. I love the bridge series. His Waterloo bridge series is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Um, But I also love the way that like he had to start interpreting it as he started like losing his eyesight too. And like the way that that started influencing his art and he kind of continued to paint what he saw in his style, but what he saw changed over the the period of time and he would reflect whether it was just a beautiful series of paintings. That's fantastic. I, I, I have to admit my art is not nearly as strong. Like uh, what was his name? Vermeer who drew the, uh, the girl with a pearl earring. I mean, I've seen all other of his paintings and they're just fantastic, but I'm much more like into like music and God, if I had to like um, Beethoven's seventh symphony, uh, specifically like the Allegretto, the slow moving uh, kind of powerful buildup. I love that. I could listen to that all day. Recently, I have found, me and my wife, we found a um, a, a choir, uh, the Camerata Choir, from the University of Pretoria in South Africa. They have just the most angelic voices, and they do some of the, the funnest music I've heard. It's, it's um, a, a lot of African cultural built into your more traditional uh, choral 
uh, Coral Group. It's it's fantastic. I, I recommend looking them up. University of Pretoria uh, Camerata Choir. It's fantastic. Nice. Um, also, yeah. just to bring this down a level, I'm a big fan of these like hate TikTok. Love the song clips. Just <laughs> pops up on like Instagram reels and there's just like great song clips that just like culture just has decided are like oh this we all uniformly understand exactly what this 30 seconds of sound bite means i think that's fantastic (laughs) definitely bringing a modern cody okay we were talking about picasso and monet and choir like let's bring it let's bring it down to the real level here you want a listenership that can be enriched by your words not just fed the same stuff that everyone else feeds. we want to be an exceptional not to say that queen isn't exceptional like i mean these things are all things that have spoken to generations of people and have like (laughs) crossed national lines and have like superseded borders right i mean monet speaks to to generations of people across in multiple different countries as does queen cody you do my job for me across national borders (laughs) it's across nations you're speaking my transition language here buddy Look, I'm a guy that understands and appreciates a softball from time to time. (laughs) (laughs) Music transcends national borders, and so do a lot of things. Not just sound waves, but goods. Those goods can range from vegetables and your dinner plate to weapons and tanks and all so many other things, right? So many things cross national borders. And when we think about how those nations interact with with one another. We need to be careful when we describe two different studies of uh, of society. It can be, I know it can be kind of split in hairs, but it's important that we all understand this. I said earlier that foreign policy is how governments approach their self themselves with other international entities, right? It doesn't have to be other governments, could be companies, could be groups. Foreign policy is different from what's called international relations. International relations is simply an analysis of how nations on the whole deal with each other. For example, uh, what are the consequences of uh, the massive pilgrimages to Mecca by devout Muslims? Or how do corporate uh, corporations like, uh, like Disney operate their parks in France or Japan as compared to the United States? The point being is that international relations is how everyone not just government, behaves on a global scale. Foreign policy is specifically government action, right? How they want to approach others. And this is important for us and for everyone listening because governments dictate so much of foreign policy. It's important that the choices that governments make are consistent with protecting freedom. If we truly believe and those ideas that are often forgotten and are self-evident, then we want governments to choose policies that align with those ideas. Um, Who makes these policies? Uh, That's a big question. Mostly for the United States, it's the president. Uh, But there are agencies involved in making foreign policy all the time. The, The State Department is the obvious one, as is the Department of Defense. But you can get things like the Department of Agriculture and the Department of Energy, not to mention the CIA, the FBI, you get the point, okay? We can go on for hours about how much authority any one of these groups should have. The Constitution is pretty clear on some things, but not everything. Um, 
What I want to focus on, however, are you saying all those aren't ultimately answerable to the president, Stan? Are we getting into like unitary executive issues here? Listen, <laughs> listen. this is the opposite of a softball. <laughs> listen, just because the president is the head of the bureaucracy does not mean the bureaucracy doesn't have its own little fiefdoms. We've covered this, right? What was this like episode like five or something? <laughs> Bureaucracies have their own little fiefdoms, right? Their own little chieftains and the president can't always control them, right? They take on their own identity. But, 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 but that, that's, that is irrelevant to our current objective, in my opinion. Because our current objective is, no matter who's making foreign policy decisions, no matter who's who should have authority, the real question is, if a government is making decisions on foreign policy, what objectives should they aim for? What are the principles that underline those objectives. Namely, what should our foreign policy be? And I know that from earlier discussions that we three have some overlapping ideas, but as we saw just a little bit last episode, there are some critical differences that are are really interesting. What I want to do is I want us to first just outline what it is we think foreign policy should be. And then when we realize that we have some similarities and differences, we can reconcile them or you know maybe not maybe we're just going to be bitter enemies scattered across the map of europe like a jigsaw puzzle who knows chrissy <laughs> is this the treaty of versailles now like <laughs> oh no 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 i was talking about pre-treaty versailles the the when i meant puzzle piece i don't mean like a literal puzzle i mean like the crisscrossing alliances that like we have an alliance with them, 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 mm. and yet we have no alliance with any of them altogether. And yet here we are in war because <laughs> some guy with a gun killed some prince from some old European power. Mm-hmm. Pretty much how it used to happen, but it, it all, you know. Okay, cakes. Chrissy, what's your foreign policy before Cody I will dive into it? And I'll just say, like, underlying all the arguments you'll probably hear today is the main idea that I support the United States having power and Cody not thinking that power matters at all. <laughs> I'm kidding, Cody. <laughs> but um, no, I actually think there's probably a lot more we all agree on than disagree. Um, and there's some things that I know Cody's going to tell you that I actually think are an amazing way to explain all of this. So hold on and wait out for his explanations. But here are mine. Um, my top three foreign policy parameters or guidelines um, are, are taken, it's a cross between actually the basic foreign policy principles from a national document that Israel created in 1969, interestingly enough, um, and sort of merged with the place I view the United States has in the world. So number one, foreign policy will be directed towards ensuring the absolute independence of the United States, strengthening her national security and sovereignty, and furthering peace while, wait for it, maintaining her status as a world power. There's that, that word. I think it's number one. And then number two, the U.S. will engage internationally when necessary to preserve and protect human rights, seeking diplomacy, negotiations, and peace first, wherever and whenever possible. And then thirdly, the United States government will continue to work for the establishment of friendly ties and mutual relations between the United States and all peace-loving states, recognizing the right of all nations, small and large, 
to a free national life and political independence. So there's a ton crammed into there, but I, I think it's a mix of creating friendly, mutually beneficial ties to other nations, recognizing their independence as well, and then our responsibility to stand up for human rights in the world, um, seeking diplomacy and negotiations first whenever possible, and then ensuring our own security and sovereignty as a world power. And when you say world power, you don't mean like, hey, we're in the world and we're a power. You mean like the power of the country can extend across the world. That's that's the idea behind world power. Mm, I mean, like we are the most powerful nation on Earth and should and do exercise our power globally to create a more foster a more peaceful world focused on humans' rights and the rights of the individual. So, so primacy, right? That doesn't have to be military, but oh, on the whole, we are correct. We're, we're, not we're totally military. Right. Okay. I'm not just like a warmonger, like ooh, let's go send the military in everywhere. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> um, sure. But yeah, no. It, it, so yes, the combination of international relations that would lead to that. Okay. Okay. Variety of the world pack. Didn't you see Putin looked away first when? Biden and Putin shook hands. So like, obviously he's the most dominant. So check in the Biden column. It's definitely not that he forgot he was supposed to look at the press covering the event to take a picture. That definitely wasn't it. It was a... Couldn't be that. No. Macho Oops. move, which is okay. <laughs> macho moves are okay when it's Biden and Putin, but not anywhere else. No. That's toxic. Correct. Macho, yeah. Macho yeah. I've got man. this all figured out now. I've got the... <laughs> <laughs> you know how it works good, good yeah. keep keep the singing in the background <laughs> listen I'm, I'm here i'm here to entertain we're a musical episode or musical episode cody what what's your foreign policy uh philosophy or approach or real politique <laughs> oh man i so first of all christy a very kind word so thank you uh but also i mean if yes our our views differ but if the United States abided by Christie's three, we would be in a uniformly better place. So let's just start like <laughs> that would definitely be I would see as a step in the right direction. Well, thank Maybe you. not okay. the okay. ultimate goal, but Pax Americanus. Right. I mean, we can all agree that we've got some issues. Um, <laughs> so I, I kind of like the idea should be like the United States should be the, the kind of I would love for us to be just the quiet country in the corner of the box. I used this kind of analogy uh, last time, like the quiet guy in the corner of the bar who kind of like, you know, we mind our own business, but everybody knows like, all right, let's let, let him do his thing. He's good. He's not afraid to walk out and like buy a guy a beer. He gets a beer bought for him. That's okay. But like, let's just keep it uniformly chill is the general view here. Um, when it comes to military. So first, you know, military is the first thing that anybody thinks of when they talk about foreign policy, you know, self-defense. That is my ultimate, you know, I, uh, no attack, no wars of aggression, no regime, regime change, no, you know, unprovoked attacks, no, oh, well, we think they've got something that they definitely don't have. So we're going to use that as a pretense to do something that we definitely can't do. I don't know what you're uh, talking about. Who would that. possibly know? It's almost <laughs> as if I have a banner behind me that says two fantastic words. Um. <laughs> Cody, real quick before, before you go on, when you say self-defense, does that include like, you know, because you know, when we talk about self-defense, you know, as individuals, right? I'd like to defend myself. But if you uh, showed aggression to a stranger that's standing next to me, could I 
I can defend them, right? They're, that's generally considered okay. Like I can defend a defenseless guy next to me that you want to hurt. Does that work with on a national or international scale? So I think you get into more problems there because what you're talking about when you have individual self-defense on an individual aggressor, so one-on-one, right, mm-hmm. is I have sole sovereign authority over my person, my actions, and my my financials, if you will, right? When you're talking about stepping into the aid of a third party, when it's one, one, and one individuals all around, right? There's no other person that I speak for. I speak for me and myself. So if I step in for their defense, you know, I have committed myself to that person's defense. The problem that you get into with the United States is, yeah, like, I think there are instances where that could be appropriate, but you're also talking about taxpayer funding. Right. You're talking about the United States expending funds of its people to defend other people. So there may be instances when where that's appropriate and where that's okay. Right. Like when you're talking about like the world wars, those are a very kind of shut and dry case when you want to talk about this. It gets a lot more wishy-washy when you start dealing with, you know, questionable violations by sovereigns of their own people or external nations on a third party nation. I, I'm sure that, you know, it'd be easy to come up with a bright line rule of yes or no. I don't think it's a bright line question. Um, I, I think that so that's sometimes a- coming, coming to the aid of another nation under attack. Sometimes that's okay. Sometimes it's not correct. And I know it depends. Is there a guiding principle that defines it's dependent? I'm not here to Chris. I'm just trying to, open this up and really get our terms straight. Cause I know Chrissy over here, Chrissy is happy to make that work, right? She's willing to protect human rights, whether or not it may or may not implicate us. You're a little different. So I want to just make sure we, we clear, clear that definition up. Yeah. So it's an expenditure versus violation question for me. Um, you know, like people have sovereignty, but people also have the, the innate sovereignty to decide their own leadership. So if, we view their leadership as committing what we would call human rights abuses, but the people in the country overwhelmingly support. Because here's the other problem, right? As soon as you talk about human rights abuses and you talk about international human rights abuses, you have to to start trying to define an international standard for what that means. And I don't trust most of the internet. As somebody that was going to get involved in international law, I don't trust a lot of the international community to decide what that is. Does not using somebody's pronouns count as a human rights? I'm talking like we we're all three of us can more or less agree on life, liberty, progress, declaration. That's Locke. That's Jefferson. You know what? Even forget the human rights thing. Don't forget human rights. That's really good. What I mean is, <laughs> never forget human rights. <laughs> no, never. <laughs> Does Germany taking France? Because it's important, I mean, for legality reasons, France declared war against Germany first. Does the occupation of Germany necessitate the action of the United States? No. From a self-defense, like the defense of others? No. Okay, that that's clear. Yeah, I think, I mean, and I'll agree with Cody that the world wars were a very good example of when the United States should have jumped in. Um, but I think it's somewhat of a question of scale. Because if it were just a war between Germany and France, I mean, you can let two sovereign nations work out their own 
uh, fights without the United States always feeling like the world's, world's policeman and jumping in. Like, I'm not advocating for that. But when it rises to a scale that clearly the world wars did and an entire people group was being wiped out and nations were being overrun, um, I think then it was basically like the United States is either going to jump in and save the world or we're going to not jump in and the world will be destroyed. Like that would have been what happened in, in my view. Um, and I think like to Cody's point about like, well, what is, what's a human right that rises to that level? I think it is scale. Like what would have happened if we had found a way to get involved in the genocide in Rwanda or the killing fields in Cambodia? Like those are clear violations that the people in Rwanda and people in Cambodia did not sit by and think their leaders should have been able to do that. They literally could not defend themselves. I'm not advocating for us to bring in a huge military force per se, but could we have done something on the international level to stop those that scale of human rights violation that costs so many lives? I want to think about that. I'm going to use that Rwanda example later. Cody, I interrupted you in the middle of you talking about your principles. Can you finish? I didn't mean to interrupt you too much. No, no, it's fine. I mean, I think this is a really tough, and this is something that like, I struggle with. I mean, this is something that when you get down to base level principles is really tough is, you know, because I, you know, believe that the country that we founded, that the our republic is exceptional, exceptional. And I think the principles that we embody or that we should be embodying are exceptional. But I also think that human beings are human beings, right? And a border is so irrelevant when you're talking about natural rights of people so that the people of Rwanda have the exact same natural rights as, as people who happen to be born on our within our borders. So you get to this really tough question of, of where is that line? And I do think that's that is the hardest question when you talk about foreign policy, because you're talking about all of these competing principles. You're talking about taxation. You're talking about using people's, you know, hard earned. Uh, wealth, but that's you're comparing that against you know these the loss of of innocent human life, while also putting you know potentially putting American lives on the line. But it, so there's these, these like all these competing factors that I think are really difficult. So I long way of saying, feel free to interrupt whenever you want. <laughs> um, I think once you know the next conversation is once you get outside of military is always trade, right? And there's this always this question of you know is free trade a good thing? Should you discourage trade? And this is always the next thing that comes up. In my view, I mean, free trade is free trade. That is that is a base principle. The idea is you should be able to freely contract with whomever you want, wherever you want. I'm going to put a caveat on this as my third point, but this is, is a very important principle in my view. Um, arbitrarily restricting people having access to goods is a net negative. Um, you know, arbitrarily stopping people from getting cheap, but somewhat quality goods to improve their life is a net negative. I mean, Walmart has done more to lift people out of abject poverty than the U.S. government has done in 150 years. Sure. And that's coming from somebody who doesn't shop at Walmart. I've spent maybe $50 there over the past two years because I don't like some of their other viewpoints and policies. So I won't spend my money there, but they've still done more to elevate people. And one of the ways they've done that is by engaging in cheap trade deals, but also through 
establishing their own sort of infrastructure, blah, 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 blah. Anyways. So this unrestricted access or this unrestricted trade, more or less, right? No, the capitalism on an international level, that's the idea. Can I take a guess what your caveat to that would be? You can. Is it human labor? Oh, it is human labor. Yeah. We <laughs> talked, we briefly talked about this in our immigration podcast, immigration episode where we were like, I was over here saying, yeah, I want to hire, no, Jorge across the border to do whatever. And he should be able to come across the border whenever one. And then we had, you know, for practical reasons, like, yeah, maybe we should have borders that are protected. Maybe he can't just cross whenever or we got into that whole spiel. So I imagine that's your one caveat. And how, do you want to elaborate on that? Yeah, essentially. So I, um, you know, there was a guest worker program that was a, a popular thing that we talked about in the uh, the immigration episode that have since become unpopular because it just wasn't part of either of the two parties platforms that was able to move forward. You know, I think that that's something that's totally workable, which is the free trade in human labor. It's a little bit more difficult there because you're talking about basically people that live close enough to be able to temporarily uh, locate in the United States work, send money back, leave without getting a citizenship. If you want to learn more about the guest worker program we talked about in the immigration episode, go have a have a listen there. <laughs> um, we did talk about at that point too of kind of unfettered immigration, which again, if we had a constitutional form of government, I'm a fan of. Until we can figure out this problem of majority rule and majority being able to infringe on the rights of the minority, the human, the natural rights of the minority, that's where I am not yet ready to get to that level. Right. From kind of a practical consideration. And I know like one of my taglines is pragmatism is the way of the devil, but you know, <laughs> we all take a step that direction one day or another. I mean, government, <laughs> government is the devil's work. So when we're talking about government, we, must, we, have to, we have to work with the devil's terms sometimes. Yeah. And then, so my other kind of caveat to this is, is my third point. And this does step a little bit more towards kind of this commercial aspect, a little bit away from kind of the government regulation side. But I think it's really important that um, when people are talking about trade, whether it be governments, which they should only be doing so to the extent that it has, that the United States government should only be doing so to the extent it has the power to do so, or even private corporations are talking about trade and are, you know, purchasing or entering into contracts, I think that they need to be considering the human rights condition of the country and the businesses that they're working with. Because if you are buying goods from a state-owned corporation and that state sponsors slavery or human rights violations, you are in effect sponsoring slavery or human rights violations. And so this is something that I think people do not talk about. Um, and it's something that it's this weird line that we're okay with free trade. We're not okay with human rights violations, but there's this weird middle ground of what do we do with these people? Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, I don't trust government policy. I don't think it's a good idea to have the government as the arbiter of what is and is not good. I think that this is a, a should be somewhat of a market consideration, but this is something that I think people should really be taking into account is a little bit more um, accountability when it comes to where dollars are going. And now there's going to be levels of removal from this, right? It's really hard for you when you buy a uh, water bottle from a company to know the chain that's involved. 
but it's not hard for that water bottle company to know what they're getting involved in. And I think that that's really important. And I think that this is something that we're going to see is if it, seeing businesses that are openly talking about not doing business with countries or corporations that are committing these obvious human rights violations and using that to, to market to people. And I think they should use that to market to people because people will pay a premium to ensure that their dollars aren't enslaving people in foreign countries. Would you be okay, since we're talking about foreign policy, not just international relations, would you be okay with a government prohibiting the purchase or the sale of slave labor goods in the country? Um, or at least the import, prohibit the importation of those goods? If that line is the statute, sure. If it doesn't turn into some 40 page bill where they get to define what X, Y, and Z means and, oh, this means this, but then it's up to the, you know, director of this. Agency. Yeah. If it's up to some bureau to define what constitutes, because then the next thing, you know, like not paying a living wage is going to constitute slave labor. I'm using right. air quotes, people. I right, realize right, you can't right. see me, but I'm right. Like <laughs> I don't, government will perpetuate its own power to push its own policy. And so if you put something in place that gives it to an agency to consider, next thing you know, any country that doesn't have a $15 an hour minimum wage or 200 days of mandated leave a year is going to be considered under X administration in 20 years to be you know, supporting slave labor. And that's- You're talking literal forced labor, not- Correct. Okay. Like actual right. slavery. Yeah. We know what slavery is. It shouldn't be hard, but <laughs> leave it to well, government to define slavery to mean what we all know it doesn't mean. Yeah. See, I, this is what I really like in all of your points. I like this one the best, Cody, just because I think it is a really good connection for people to make if America, <laughs> from my view, is going to be a world power. But but regardless, if we're going to take our place in the world and be responsible, sometimes I think solving international human rights issues isn't only going into another country and inserting ourselves and stopping things. Sometimes, in my view, that's the answer. But to your point, sometimes it's holding our own companies more responsible for following standards here and I know I'm putting my own frame on what you just said, but that's why I like it. I think it's a, another level of responsibility that we should push here in the U.S. I just think it's it's also just uniformly easier to deal with than trying to deal with these difficult, like actual armed conflict questions. Because if you stop sending money to these countries, like these vast amounts of money to countries that are committing human rights violations, then you don't have to worry about those countries becoming unwieldy superpowers that are going to then threaten you in return, right? It, it kind of fixes, like cut off, you don't need to deal with armed conflict if you cut off the the blood flow to, to these issues. I mean, it just seems, you know, I'd rather not send dollars than to try and send, you know, weapons to rebels. Like, like you know, US, like the US has a history of doing yeah, there's a, I can't remember who said, but no, if you want to know who America's next enemy is, look at who we're funding right now. <laughs> talk, that 50 Good years of foreign policy. <laughs> I mean, Seriously. yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, you guys have some, you have some, some great, some great outlines. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I, we'll, we'll see here. Cause I was thinking about this. I wanted, I wanted to figure out, could you have a set of foreign policy principles that aren't just for the United States, that 
that are for everything, right? Because now if we believe in self-evident forgotten ideas that are universal across the board, then foreign policy more or less should be the same. And I I, I keep thinking about this and I, I teach this to my kids, this first one, international power is anarchic, right? There's no overlord government. There's no Leviathan state. It's, it's an anarchy. And, you know, if you like anarchy, and I'm not talking chaos, we're talking anarchy, right? The absence of a government. If you like anarchy, uh, that then you accept, you have to accept that you must provide and protect yourself. And that corollary means that voluntary engagements, voluntary interactions are still the moral standard, which for me means that trade on that international scale must be done by private entities. There can't be sponsorship of trade. There can't be state sponsorship of trade. It literally is cool. Sell what you want. Here's our borders. You can once you sit, once you sit over here, you follow our laws, right? That that to me is kind of principle number one, right? And international power is anarchic. Voluntary engagements are still the norm. But because it's anarchy, the use of force is totally valid. Like you said, Cody, in the moment of self-defense, right? I think we might have in more, uh, I think I might have a clear understanding of self-defense, right? When I think of self-defense, I'm talking about our borders, right? Now, we might have international territory abroad, right, that aren't necessarily related to the continental U.S., but if we've got territory somewhere, um, it's our absolute sovereign right to defend it to the last man standing if we so see fit so then you get to deal with the tough question Mm -hmm. if nation a you know directly attacks defenseless nation b Mm -hmm. does the united states have any role um yeah no no the the rwanda question uh, i i i first learned about the the genocide of rwanda when i was in like shit seventh eighth grade um it was it's it's i actually met uh the author of uh the book um about her hiding in in her uh pastor's bathroom for like weeks and weeks on end um really powerful stuff Mm -hmm. um yeah cody this is this is this is hard like my i'm i'm pretty clear cut right that's not that's not our territory um I don't know. Do you make an exception to to your to a key principle and say no? That's not our place. We can't do anything about it. I I I don't know how to add it. Now, so, some people might be listening. Like Stan, you are an idiot. This is evil. You can't let you can't not let this happen. You have to stop this, right? Any any person in their right mind would come to the defense of these people, and I, and I agree. I, I mean, if if someone was trying to hurt a little kid who I didn't know anything about right next to me. I like your zip code. I would swoop in. I'd do everything I could to help the kid. The, the problem is, is how, how do you commit it? And this goes to my, to, to my, uh, the, another part of this, right? The use of force is completely valid, but it has to be proportional, right? When I say proportional, I'm not just talking about, you know, an eye for an eye. I'm talking about proportional to the effect that it thwarts future attempts, right? Um, what's or that? Or stops something as it's occurring, I assume. Yeah. So, you know, um, 
you know, if what, what's that phrase? You put one of ours in the hospital, we put two of yours in the morgue or something like that. Is mm-hmm. you, you guys yeah. ever heard that phrase? Uh-huh. That, that's I'm, I'm very much inclined towards the, um, the ender strategy. You guys ever read the ender games? I think we might've talked about this on this show before. Craig, did we talk about this when Chris was gone? I don't remember. I don't think we have, but I, I know what you're talking about. For those of you who haven't read uh, the ender game or, or watched the movie, there's this essential principle where um, you want to win a fight, right? You, you, you want to win a fight. If you have to be in a fight, you want to win it. But you want to win it in such a way that those who are watching you don't try to start a fight with you, which means that this poor guy who chose to fight with you, maybe he doesn't deserve to get his face smashed in so hard. Maybe, maybe he just shoved you, right? Maybe he wanted to start a fight, but he didn't really want to do anything didn't really want to hurt you. You want to hurt him so badly, even if he individually may not deserve it, you want to hurt him so badly that others go, okay, let's not mess with that guy. That's what I mean by proportionality. I don't mean proportionality. He shoved me, I punch him. I mean, he shoved me. I'm going to hurt him so bad that others looking don't do anything because international relations has to be public. Everyone's looking at everyone. That's what foreign policy is. If I'm a government, my foreign policy needs to be such a way that I am demonstrating a public act, right? So could you apply that at all, though, like to the Rwanda genocide type thing? Like basically it is to your original principle of of we defend our own borders and defend ourselves. Like that is a good principle and I agree with it. But is there a second principle that would apply in international situations where, I mean, I think there's no question there would be far more genocides around the world if the United States did not use diplomacy, negotiations, um, a whole host of things, sometimes military might, to show if you do what this country did, here's what's going to happen to you. This is is something. Is there a different principle that you could use to apply Mm -hmm. there that is just separate from the self-defense issue? Because international power is an anarchy, right? And there's no overarching Leviathan. It means that nations can engage with one another, right? Not just, you know, company to company. Governments can interact with each other. While I hate most of what the United Nations has become, the idea of a voluntary collection of of nations, of governments, because that's what the United Nations is. It's Governments coming together, a voluntary association of governments coming together to solve problems that are not any one person's problem, but are nevertheless the whole world's problem. That kind of association is okay with me. I'm okay making agreements with other nations saying, listen, this is no one person's problem, but it's affecting all of us. I'm happy when those solutions are there. When, so if, since we're Americans, let's talk about that. When the United States assumes the role of taking care of the world's problems, that 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 breaks with this principle, right? It breaks with the territory is the only place that matters, right? Because my so third, we can only act if we're doing it in alliance with other nations who want to go with us, and only if they go with us. If we are the primary peacekeepers, that's a problem for me. If, however, because you no, know, if if the Rwanda genocide has international implications, right? Because we right. all know that this isn't something that stays in Rwanda. This goes elsewhere. 
if we are able as an international community to say, we should try and go in and stop that, I'm fine doing that. If there's an international effort and not a primary United States effort. I know that precisely what hurt anyone from stopping that effort, that genocide is because the international community attempted to talk about it and attempted to send in peacekeepers from the UN who had no ability to enforce anything. And that's why it continued. I mean, I am no fan of the UN um, at all. So, you know, I'm quite harsh on the UN. I think they've messed up a lot of things. And I think because of the tendency of nations when they attempt to ally and say, oh, co- like cohesively together, let's determine what's best for the international community. The failure it of tends to fall apart and never be a success in actually stopping genocides. In my evaluation, you know, Rwanda failed because the United States didn't lead, right? And and there are, there, there are some race implications as well I don't want to get into. Um, you know, you compare the 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 genocide that happened in Eastern Europe as compared to Africa. I don't want to get into that. Being the primary or only peacekeeper is not the same thing as being a leading peacekeeper, right? The United States is a leader, right? We've developed ourselves that way. We led the effort to stop other atrocities with others behind us, okay? We didn't lead the Rwanda effort. The Rwanda effort failed because we weren't we weren't there. President Clinton didn't consider it a priority. Maybe he did, but he didn't certainly publicly express it. Okay, I'm, so I, I'm going to push back on a couple things here. First of all, Mister, I have a clearer picture of my self defense policy than Cody. I did not say that. clearly <laughs> not. I said I think I have a clear oh understanding of territorial boundaries. Well, that oh no, that I that no, okay, no. <laughs> Second of all. So I, I two challenges. Mm. Well, maybe I'll hold on to proportionality because I, I want to get into that for a second. But first, why? Do, so if we're going to be the leader, why the hell do we wait for other countries? If we've decided that we're getting involved and there's a human rights violation on the scale of the Rwandan genocide, why the hell do we wait? It's what, because, what's the benefit? It's because it's not our territory. It's because that isn't our nation. Right. And, and this goes to a principle of, of your own. Right. This is we would be committing funds coercively taken from others, taxes. Right. We are committing resources that have been coercively taken. In so order you're just to limiting this. the resources that we're committing. You're just trying to limit what we're I mean, because we're committing if we commit resources as the leader or if we commit resources as the follower, we've committed resources. Mm-hmm. We've I, I mean, the principle is doesn't care whether it's one or a million, the principle is there. No, 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 no. You know as well as I do that. I Listen, pragmatism is the way of the devil. If you are a true anarchist, preferably an anarcho-capitalist, if you are a true anarchist, all taxes are immoral. If, and this is, this I actually worded this just exactly like this. So listen to how I did this. If government is legitimate, the only legitimate foreign policy is the protection of the natural rights of its citizens and only its citizens and only within the government's territory. Citizens are shaking her head. I know. We're having a different set of principles. So I know we do. Citizens are groups that engage within the government's territory are protected. Citizens are groups that engage elsewhere should not expect the eagles to swoop in and protect them, right? Some 
dumb kid decides to go to a nation that hates women, if they go there and they're women, they should expect to be treated harshly. And they should not expect SEAL Team 6 to come in and rescue them, right? Be- that Does that mean SEAL Team 6 shouldn't do it, though? Like, I mean, I think there's a difference between should an American citizen who's being dumb expect the defense of their military, which, it, by the way, that citizen is an American, so you could actually make an argument on principle that they should be protected and defended. No. Um, if, if it, it depends, though. Is your principle that you defend your land and your borders or your people? And that brings you to a different answer. And whether or not it should be expected is a different question to whether or not we should do it. If you say that governments protect their people, then you necessitate imperialism. Because if I, if, if you say that and my people are across the world, my jurisdiction as government is everywhere. And that's, that's insane. That's imperialism. That's that, taken that's, to its like worst end, not necessarily its yes, but I'm trying logical to take, conclusion. I think that's its logical conclusion, right? I mean, we see it now. Any you could have an American anywhere in the world, and right now we could strike that nation within well, so, minutes. So I don't think it necessarily means so protecting your I, I think there's a limit on principles. So like if you protect your people, it doesn't you're actually risking the rest of your people to go declare war, basically do an act of war on another nation because they are endangering one of your people. So if your obligation is to protect all of your people, you still have to consider what's in the best interest of your entire nation, not solely one citizen at the expense of everyone else. I think it's, I think governments have an obligation to protect their citizens within the defined border of the government's nation. That's it. And otherwise, you otherwise you risk just the 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 <laughs> you have this problem where we feel like we can do whatever we want wherever we want simply because we have someone there, right? Yeah, I mean, just because I mean, I freedom is freedom's dangerous though. But like, if people freely chose to venture into a danger, like that. The same as, you know, if people choose to wander into Yellowstone Park and get killed by grizzly bears, we're not going to go and exterminate the grizzly bears, right? People make <laughs> no, dangerous no, no. choices. <laughs> but like, if you've decided to go to a country that has known human rights violations or has is known to be dangerous, that's you've made a free choice. That's fine. I don't think we have an obligation to affirmatively right. avenge right. you. If you're kidnapped from our country. That we have like an obligation to do it. Just that there's a difference in that person being like, I'm an American, come rescue me. It's, you know, I demand and expect that as a citizen versus allowing like our soldiers and our government to say, hey, in this situation, it is appropriate to go in and rescue our person. And Um, in this situation, it's not. I, I think there are in a practical world, there are lines that have to be drawn differently in different situations. Chrissy, you're a mom. If you tell your kids, no, you're not allowed to do that, and then they do it and you don't punish them, what happens? Well, but if they don't do it and they get in trouble, I will still go rescue them. <laughs> You'll still go rescue them, sure. But you know as well as I do, all right? You know, Cody, you may or may not know this, but Chris and I, those being teacher and being a, being a parent, if I tell a kid, listen, if you do this, these are the consequences, you must accept them. And I don't enforce that, then they will assume that I will not enforce it later. Right? You can't, you, we can say it's not our policy, 
to go rescue in some other country. That's not our policy. But if we do it once and we don't do it again, now we have now we have accusations of injustice. We and, do that though. That's precisely what we do right and now. And I'm saying that's a bad thing. Oh, well, I think it's a good thing. So there we go. <laughs> also, I resent the implication. I worked day camps, summer camps for a really long time. I, I ran sorry. day camps. I'm the sorry. idea that I can't understand how I didn't I, say you couldn't. I'm just saying <laughs> I'm very sorry. Offended. I assume children too. I understand. I'm sorry. I did my part in the, the progressive strongholds to let kids play <laughs> cops and robbers and to build like toy guns with Legos. I did what I could. I did my part, Stanton. I did my duty. <laughs> okay. So let's 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 bring it back here. At this point, we've outlined our poll, our, our kind of our principles. And there's some big questions that we still haven't really resolved, even within those, right? We have some overlap here, we have some differences there. We're starting to explore those differences. At this point, I think we're all willing to say we have a lot more to talk about. We have a lot more to talk about. We've set out what we want to say. Now we've got to reconcile them because we're starting to do that now. But I think we have, I think we have more work to do. We're coming close to our to our hour. I want to kind of cap it here. I think next time we can resume this foreign policy discussion to now becoming more of a debate which i'm i love this we don't get to debate a lot here because we're all in agreement on things let's regroup we'll have that debate in a more structured way so not just randomly all over the place talking about this genocide or that genocide so that we're focused right it's so sad that like i mean that like in a little bit of a serious note like that sucks right like listen you i I pose a question you you pose a question to me it sucks both ways yeah do you do either of you have any shout outs? Just no. utter silence. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, was, I might have to cut that silence out. If not, that's okay. That's okay. I'll save. Uh, I'll save my shout out for the the part two. Okay. I will, okay. I'll put in my notes for part two. We'll do that. We'll all, we'll all give super shout outs next time. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we've had a pleasure being with you. Uh, we do know the topic of our next uh, next episode. It will be foreign policy part two. Uh, and the ideas that we will explore there will be self-evident. They will be forgotten. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at SEF underscore pod, as well as Facebook. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and anywhere else you listen. With that, ladies and gentlemen, we will see you 